Hello, and welcome to the Truth Beyond the News podcast, where the goal is to give you more insight beyond what you hear in the news soundbite. I'm releasing this podcast on October 10th, 2021, World Mental Health Day, and this is a personal story of my son that exposed to me the significant shortcomings and flaws for those seeking support for mental health issues. I want to share it with you so that you can also understand how much is required and still left to do to support individuals and families in crisis. I live in Virginia, so you'll hear some specific references, but while my story is in Virginia, I've heard the same theme across many stories across the country and almost certainly around the world. Imagine walking in to visit your 15-year-old son in the only state-run mental health hospital for children and adolescents, and as you lay eyes on him across the room, he is scooting towards you with no socks or shoes and has restraints on both legs and both wrists. All he needs is an orange jumpsuit, and he could easily be mistaken for a prisoner, but he is not. He is a boy with autism and an unspecified mood disorder, and he doesn't know how to control his emotions when he gets frustrated and acts out aggressively to those around him. He needs help to learn better coping skills, to better communicate and manage his emotions, and he likely needs medication changes to help make learning and applying those skills a reality. My son's plight has been a long road leading up to this, but what has become crystal clear is that the Commonwealth of Virginia most definitely does not have the facilities, state-run or private, to address the many cases like his. My son Tyler has had these issues since a young age. He has gotten angry, screams, cries, maybe destroys property, maybe destroys other people's stuff at school, and sometimes gets aggressive towards others. Elementary school was a challenge, and after trying different approaches, my county finally realized what we had known for much longer. The public schools were not equipped to handle my son and to teach him what was needed while keeping everyone around him safe. We went through three private day school placements, which means Tyler would get up each morning, take a long bus ride, sometimes an hour long, to go to a private school the county helped us to find and fund that was supposed to be able to help my son. In each case, those schools failed. In the first two schools, he was constantly getting suspended, sent home, and or spending more time in timeout than learning. After that first school, we chose to move him to school number two. Within about a year, they abruptly, with no notice to allow future school planning, discharged him. Discharge. That's their nice way of saying he was expelled, but there is nothing nice about being told your child can't go back to school tomorrow because he is too aggressive. No warnings that if behavior doesn't change, he would be expelled. No letter to say we should start looking because they don't feel like they can handle his behavior and educate him. No, just one day he can't come back. A month later, he started school number three. That was a school that was going to be using Applied Behavioral Analysis, ABA, for those familiar with this approach to help many kids with behavior issues, and especially common for kids with autism. This is a school that doesn't suspend and doesn't discharge students, as they understand autism is difficult to manage. School number three was no better. Their behaviors were always worse at school, and in less than a year, they decided to suspend him. Remember, they don't do that at this school. A day later, we were once again told, with zero warning, that he could not come back to school the next day or ever again. He was too aggressive, and the clinical team felt they couldn't help him. Keep in mind, we had been trying for years ourselves with psychologists, therapists, psychiatrists, and a variety of alternative therapies. We tried over a dozen medications, and nothing seemed to help for long, if at all. To a degree, you can manage a physical outburst from a 10-year-old. You may have to give him a bear hug until he calms down, but it is doable. When your son goes through puberty, though, and then outweighs you, things get much more difficult. I was the only adult male in the house, and now he is almost my height and a few pounds heavier, and when he gets angry, 
He is like the Incredible Hulk with increased strength. I was the only one that had a chance with him as my wife and three daughters were all much smaller than my son, and they've all been victims in the past of hits, kicks, bites, or items being thrown at them, and not lightly. There comes a time that you have to do more to protect the safety of everyone. We had called the police before, and in my county, we are fortunate that they are very well trained with autism and have a soft approach to dealing with people like my son. When my son was discharged from his third school, he got worse at home. It seemed the anxiety of knowing they expelled him really built up inside, and he would be acting fine, and then suddenly tell me that he got, in quotes, the angry feeling, and would become very physical. That week, we called the police two more times to come to my house. At that point, even my son wanted to go to the hospital to get better, but we had no idea what was in store for us. We chose Chippenham Hospital because of their affiliation with Tucker Pavilion, which is an acute care mental health facility. My son spent several days on the medical side, always with a staff babysitter given his aggression, while they ran various tests, including EEGs and an MRI. I secretly prayed something would be found. We could easily treat it, and he would suddenly be better. But that never happened. Everything was always normal, and after being told he could be admitted to Tucker, the official bed search revealed Tucker denied his request. If you're new to acute care placement of children for mental health facilities, once you're cleared on the medical side, they have to call around to all the private mental health facilities, describe the patient's condition, and see who will accept the child and who has a bed available. Saying autism takes out a chunk of the facilities, and if you say aggression, that rules out most everyone else. Basically, no private hospital wants to take autism plus aggression. We knew nothing at this point, but mistakenly thought most any place could help him. No beds were found, so we stayed another night. We complained to the management of Tucker Pavilion for implying he would be accepted and then denying him. They told us they were reviewing the case again, and the next day, we got what we thought was good news. They changed their mind and accepted my son. I'm sure they regret that decision to this very day. My son's aggression got worse there. Every day he was lashing out, and they solved that by injecting him with psychotropic drugs, in addition to what he was taking orally and using a restraint bed, where he was strapped down each time until he calmed down. This process of daily injections and restraints led to my son throwing up one night. Fortunately, the pediatrician from the medical side ran tests and determined a blood level was so high that he was at risk of kidney failure that resulted from the daily, sometimes two or three times daily, injections into his muscles, plus the resistance in the restraints that was damaging them. Combine that with an extremely poor diet and not drinking water, none of which was regulated, nor was hygiene of any sort, and my son was in a bad place. He was ultimately there for five weeks, much longer than typical, and he was pulled off the main unit and put in a room that had no windows, where he couldn't tell the difference from day or night, and where he had at least one staff with him at all times, often two. While the psychiatrist had changed some medications, he was still being restrained daily, but due to the blood level issues, they had stopped all the injections. Tucker was not remotely prepared to handle anyone like my son, the staff didn't have the training, and they didn't have the proper facilities. Staff were injured, unfortunately, by my son at times, and the staff ultimately gave in to whatever he wanted to avoid more aggressive outbursts. That, of course, reinforced negative behaviors, going back to the fact that the staff were not properly trained or prepared. Through all of this, we fervently worked with our county to gain approval for a residential school for our son. We knew things had gone too far, and we were even more concerned about the safety of our family at home. But my son had a very good side, too but he just couldn't control himself when things didn't go his way. While the county agreed the residential route was the best one, we struggled to find a residential facility that would take my son, and we were told a single facility was the place my son should go, Grafton. We asked what we should do if Grafton denied him, and we weren't given another option. We continuously worked with Tucker, Grafton, and the county, 
but Grafton was very reserved about taking my son because of the daily aggression. Meanwhile, Tucker was at the end of their rope and were pushing extremely hard to get him out of their facility as they realized they were not equipped to handle him and staff patience was wearing very thin. The staff was always very nice to me when I visited, but I certainly could understand it wearing them down over multiple weeks. We were basically forced to take my son home versus sending him directly to a residential school, and this was extremely disconcerting because we didn't have the adults to manage daily aggression at our house. We had met with the county before that day came, and we looked into numerous other resources. Virtual residential sounds great, but they don't deal with aggression and don't help if there is any while they are present. We ended up with ABA, but instead of 40 hours approved per week, we got around 8 to 10 per week. And that's pretty lucky given most places have a long wait list for ABA. The ABA didn't start right away, so on the day my son was discharged, I went with my brother. The discharge itself went okay, other than they lost nearly everything my son had taken with him, or had been given to him since he was there, and never found it. My son was upset when he got home after seeing the seasons change while he was gone, and over the next week, I had another brother stay with me during the day in anticipation of issues. Tyra was much better at home, but he got upset several times and got aggressive a few times. We were always walking on eggshells, as you could never know for sure what would push him over the edge. My two older daughters were also home from college for the summer, so it just added the amount of people, noise, and activities going on in the house. Over the next two months, we had some big outbursts with ABA services present, trying to get him to work with a homebound teacher a few times a week, and with just normal activities that upset him. Things like going to church, not having a snack 10 minutes before dinner was ready, taking a shower, brushing his teeth, etc. It was tough and very challenging, but we had relief in sight as Grafton had accepted him after an interview at home with him and many phone calls. We had one false start with them as we were told a week before he was supposed to start that there was going to be a delay because they didn't have discharges as expected and there was no bed for him. We worked through all that and he went to Grafton on July 24th. Tyra went fine with us and he knew why he was going and he seemed to understand. He was even fine while we met an array of new people at the admission. Unfortunately, it didn't last. And before we even made our two and a half hour trip back home, he had his first aggressive episode and that was his best day there. After daily calls and aggression, they sent him to CCCA, the Commonwealth Center for Children and Adolescents, after just six full days at the campus. We went from an initial relief of finally finding the right place to help my son to a life of anxiety and distress for the foreseeable future. It started off with an array of abbreviations, ECO, emergency custody order, so they could have local police transport my son to the closest emergency room for evaluation, and followed by a TDO, temporary detaining order, so they could involuntarily have him admitted into a mental health acute care facility. Tyler got to the ER shortly after lunchtime and didn't leave for over 12 hours. Once they do the medical assessment, lab work, drug screens, etc., the decision is made with the local community services board, CSB, to have him admitted for acute psychiatric care. Now we are back to that familiar process of finding a bed. This time it is fairly clear from the beginning, autism plus severe aggression, because originally it was probably considered mild at the first day, equals no private hospital will accept him. We confirmed this hours later as the process is not at all fast, even when you know the answer before you start. CCCA, the only state psychiatric hospital for children, was his destination. Even knowing that, there was still a lot of paperwork before you can just go. A doctor at CCCA needs to sign off, there needs to be paperwork showing no other private hospitals accepted him, and the police need paperwork to do the actual transportation, which, by the way, is always in handcuffs. Forgot to mention that my 15-year-old son had to be driven in handcuffs from Grafton to the ER in Winchester because that's the protocol for an ECO. 
It is for the TDO as well to transport to the destination hospital. There's nothing like treating a mental health patient like a criminal as it isn't for the safety when the kid will voluntarily go with you to sit in the back of a police car that has a secured back seat. Plus, if any kid wanted to, they still have their feet for kicking anyone, so let's not believe handcuffs are the answer for our kids with mental health issues. While you are sitting in the hospital ER for many hours, you share the company of a representative from the residential school, as well as a police officer the entire time. Fortunately for my son, the Grafton nighttime representative, as they switched that around 9 p.m., I believe, was nice enough to suggest that once handcuffed, my son could at least hang a sweatshirt over his handcuffs to walk out so it looked like he was just walking out normally, carrying a sweatshirt. I'm sure that is more rare than typical, but I really appreciated the gesture. Even after 1 a.m., which is when it was when we finally were leaving Winchester to travel to the Stanton, where CCCA is located. After arriving at around 2.30 a.m. and finishing the admission process, I drove another one and a half hours home to get some sleep. My son was fine on the trip down and being admitted and even gave me a hug goodbye. I think he still knew that he wanted to get his behavior under control, as he had told me that on more than one occasion. I thought that this place, PCCA, was really the place for my son, since they are the bed of last resort, when no other hospital would take a patient. That they were used to autism and severe aggression. They've handled the worst, and they understand them and have experience helping them. It's traumatic, but at least he will finally get the help he needs. It's too bad my track record continued its largely losing streak. At CCCA, my son's aggression stayed amped up. Grafton didn't use any type of restraints, which was one of the reasons I liked them, but CCCA does. They have a restraint chair. As I was told by them that a restraint bed, like Tucker Pavilion used, was more demeaning than a chair is, apparently. They had no trouble using the chair, for sure. Tar was in that chair at least once every day for his entire stay, with the exception of about three of his last four days. They verbally try to de-escalate any child, and they offer alternatives, etc., and I believe they don't want a child to be restrained, but for everyone's safety, you have to do it at times. The problem is, they start with a physical restraint of staff with a patient, and unless the patient immediately stops, they're going to the restraint chair. With the data I have for about two weeks of his stay, I don't think they ever had longer than a three-minute physical hold on my son before putting him on the restraint chair, which I'm sure is a significant ordeal for everyone involved. You have to physically force him into a chair, strap his arms, legs, and chest, and if he doesn't want to allow that, that can be both dangerous and traumatic. More than once, he wouldn't allow them to strap his legs down, and he would then try to kick or would push the chair with his legs. At one time, he pushed the chair back into a staff member and injured them. Let there be no mistake. When my son gets aggressive, he can hurt other people, and I am forever sorry for that, but the way the aggression is dealt with is less than humane. Being in a restraint chair from anywhere from one to three hours is just ridiculous, but what followed was even worse. CCCA had been changing medications with no luck. The aggression was daily and was not easily predicted. They tried several other approaches simultaneously, but as a psychologist indicated, they are not set up to do long-term behavioral interventions because they are a short-term stabilization facility. Unfortunately, they couldn't stabilize them enough to go back to Grafton or anywhere else, especially home. CCCA is meant to be an acute care facility. Generally, patients stay 7 to 10 days, but some more and maybe some less. My son was there for 7 weeks. They were honestly doing us a favor as we were feverishly working with everyone we could to find a suitable place for him to go that could really help him. But with staff being involved in aggression daily and some being injured, they felt they had to step it up to maintain safety. After 3 weeks, they decided my son needed AMRs, ambulatory mechanical restraints. 
That's a nice way of basically saying the equivalent of shackles that you see on a TV show when transporting a prisoner. But these stay on all the time. It didn't start that way. It started as just hand restraints. They called them two-point restraints. But quickly, in less than 24 hours, moved to hand and leg restraints. They called those four-point restraints. For a very short time, they would take off the leg restraints at bed after he was sleeping. But that courtesy wore off very quickly. And for his last three weeks there, he was in four-point restraints 24 hours a day. This brought with it many other limitations like going outside, getting any physical exercise, etc. There were occasional exceptions to let him outside, but it was minimal. And you can't do much about physical exercise with your hands and legs bound. Even with these restraints, my son still managed to be aggressive and hurt some staff. I fully understand and appreciate the need to keep everyone safe, but there has to be a better way than keeping a 15-year-old in shackles 24 hours a day, including while he sleeps. Is this the best we can do in the Commonwealth to care for our most vulnerable population? So why was my son there for seven weeks, and where is he now? While at CCCA, the social worker there provided a list of facilities out of state that they have sent adolescents to in the past. My wife and I spent a significant amount of time calling all of those places, everyone in Virginia, and researching alternatives everywhere we could find, or anywhere we could find. We joined Facebook groups in other states and posted questions and read reviews. We continued to work with the county as well, but what we ultimately found was that Virginia doesn't have a facility to handle this population of individuals, and my guess is that this is not the only population the Commonwealth isn't prepared to handle. From the list CCCA provided, we found and applied to an autism-only program in South Carolina. My son was accepted there, but of course there's a long waiting list. CCCA continued to work with us in the county to help keep Tyre while they had availability and knowing we were all working very diligently to find a more suitable facility for him. My county had only placed a few students out of state ever, so it was an uncommon request. We had to prove that none of the in-state contracted facilities would accept my son, so we literally had to call even ones we knew wouldn't accept my son, where it was clear on their website, to document their denials. We contacted all facilities contracted with the county, as well as a number of others that weren't on the list that we had heard about. Literally, no one in the Commonwealth of Virginia would accept my son with autism and aggression. No one. There were some out-of-state schools that were possibilities, but we found them to be very expensive, and they wouldn't take Virginia Medicaid. The county has to pay for part of that cost, especially dealing with the educational piece. And they have the ability to pay for other costs as well, but they have to be mindful of the overall cost in a limited budget. My private insurance will only cover so much as well, and many didn't take my insurance at all. My son was only eligible for Medicaid because he had lived outside of the home for 31 days, but that was a fortunate and necessary funding source. We realized we could not get sufficient funding for out-of-state placement that relied solely on the family or the county for paying the bills. Some of the places were hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. We landed on two options that we could handle from a funding perspective and that could handle our son. Springbrook Behavioral Health in South Carolina, and Kennedy Krieger Institute, KKI, Neurobehavioral Unit in Maryland. Springbrook is autism only, has a school, and takes Virginia Medicaid. KKI takes my insurance and is a world-renowned facility. Unfortunately, KKI has 16 beds and has over 600 applications a year. Also doesn't have a school, but schooling was a secondary priority to getting the behaviors under control, and KKI does that well. Our only two realistic options, neither of which are in Virginia, both had waiting lists, so we kept looking, kept talking, and kept praying something would help in the meantime. Finally, with the help and coordination from a number of people from the county, Springbrook, and CCCA, we were able to get my son admitted to Springbrook in September of 2019. 
It has been a very difficult and challenging transition for my son and for me as well. With a six and a half hour drive one way, I can't go see him every weekend like I was when he was one and a half hours away in Stanton. That's really tough on everyone, and especially during the very rough transition period for my son where he really wanted to go home. It is difficult for him that I cannot visit more often. While I believe spring will be able to help my son like no other place has been able to help, I've certainly thought that before. With Tucker, then Grafton, then CCCA. So I'm betting on being right this time. It's so unfortunate that the Commonwealth of Virginia has no such facilities anywhere within its borders and that desperate families have to leave their home state to find care needed for those with challenging mental health conditions. In a state with so much prosperity, how can we leave this extremely vulnerable population with nowhere to go? If a child in one of these situations doesn't have the family involvement like my son did, or they don't have the capacity or ability to take significant time off work to research, spend hours on the phone, and visit these facilities, would they even get the care they need? We likely have adolescents now in need of care that are not getting it because the Commonwealth doesn't have anything to offer them. And if you're in the care of the state and your county has limited funds or knowledge of what's available outside of your state to support these adolescents, then what is the prognosis for them? This is a complex story, and I didn't even focus on other issues like the significant lack of hygiene in all the facilities, the inability to manage his diet, think eating cookies for any meal on top of his required gluten-free diet, having lawyers talk to him while he's at the hospital because he came in through a TDO, or the lack of communication with the human rights advocate and committee that was supposedly involved in dealing with the ongoing restraint issue at CCCA. Autism, mood disorder, aggression, those are just the pieces of my son's complex condition. But the more I read and the more I look in Facebook groups, the more I realize there are many parents facing the same or similar problems, and they don't know where to go or where to turn to for help. The Richmond Times-Dispatch wrote a couple of articles in 2019 on the hurdles of adult mental health, but the reality is there are even more options for adults than children. Granted, the adult situations are certainly challenging also. Children's mental health is so complex, and individuals vary so much from one another, but if we don't get children the help they need now, then you can be guaranteed they will end up in worse situations as adults and just end up in the criminal justice system or the constrained adult mental health system. We should be focusing significant time and investments in children's mental health now because addressing it before they turn 18 will help maximize their chance at a productive adult life that will not end up in already flooded adult facilities. We should be trying to teach the children the skills they need, educate them, and get them the needed medication attention they need now so they can live with their families and grow up as close to normal as possible where they can have a safe and healthy relationship with their families and not become wards of the state. We need to spend the time and investments to build and implement the foundations of children's mental health in the Commonwealth so we can reduce the population of incarcerated mental health cases. Virginia needs to step up and address these problems now before they get worse. Virginia needs a solution so families don't need to go out of state to get treatment. Virginia can learn from other states, can improve on those, and can become an example for others to follow. But we have to take action and not just have committee meetings endlessly. My son's story is just one of many sad stories in Virginia. Virginia needs to be aggressive in finding solutions for the children's mental health crisis so that we don't have to read more stories like this. This is a call to action. I wrote that in late 2019. Fortunately, my son's case ended up better than many. My son endured many challenges for 20 months, but he finally returned home in April. He is doing better than I could have ever expected, and I am ever so thankful for that, and for all those people that provided the help he needed. In the end, I can't be sure when he actually got better. It's actually hard to describe, 
but I believe that God looked down upon him and helped heal him. There was an army of people praying for my son for years, and it seems the only explanation, or at least a big part of it. My son agreed to me telling his story on this podcast, and I hope it makes an impact. According to the National Alliance on Mental Issues, 1 in 20 U.S. adults experience serious mental illness each year. 1 in 5 experience some type of mental illness each year. 1 in 6 U.S. youth aged 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder each year. According to the CDC, approximately 4.5 million children in the age of 3 to 17 have a diagnosed behavior problem. 4.4 million 3 to 17 have a diagnosed anxiety issue. And approximately 1.9 million children aged 3 to 17 have diagnosed depression. In Virginia, this past July, the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services announced they were closing five of the eight state hospitals for adults to new admissions, at least temporarily. The only state-run hospital for children, that same one in my story, was only able to operate 18 out of 48 beds. There are a lot of reasons why, but the specifics almost don't matter for my point. One thing positive the COVID pandemic has done has highlighted the importance of mental health, but it goes beyond isolation and depression. Many families suffer the same or worse situations that my family suffered, and we clearly need to do more, and we can do more. Please take some time to email or call your state and federal representatives and ask them what they can do to increase funding and support for our children and adults with mental health issues, both in your state and as a nation as a whole. Thanks for listening to the Truth Beyond the News podcast. Till next time.